And the person interviewing me wrote those words down, looked up from his piece of paper and said to me, so do you think we're going to like that? Yeah, I, I do what I do today, Kathy, because of a fourth grade field trip. No credit to me, just me fumbling along with what I knew at the time and the dog being very forgiving of my mistakes. Intellectual curiosity. I'm a sucker for it. Always have been. Once I could read, any book I could reach on the shelf was fair game. Of course, I was also a fan of climbing on the bookshelves, so that meant pretty much everything was free territory. The point is that I read a lot. And these days, when something catches my attention, I tend to chew on it a while. Kind of like this op-ed I read in the New York Times a bunch of months ago. It talked about something called cheap speech. The article was about politics. You guys know how I feel about that. So it was really, though, the concept of cheap speech that stuck out for me. So I tracked down the guy who coined the phrase back in 1995, Professor Eugene Volokh. And that's who joins me today. Professor Volokh is an expert on free speech and the First Amendment. He tackles a solid cross-section of topics free speech, religious freedom law. He also teaches a First Amendment amicus brief clinic. He also is very well-versed in libel law. He's taught copyright, criminal, tort, and firearms regulation law. Before he got to UCLA, he clerked on the Supreme Court for Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. He also clerked on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit for Judge Alex Kaczynski. He's authored a bunch of books, argued over 30 appellate cases in state and federal court, He's filed over a hundred appellate briefs, and his articles have been cited more than 240 times in judicial opinions. Though, and if all that's not enough, he spent 12 years as a computer programmer and got his bachelor's in math and computer science, so he's written about computer software too. With all this, it made perfect sense that he coined this phrase, cheap speech, to predict the way the internet was going to impact communication and media. By the way, he was right. I was keen to hear his view on the way technology's influence on media is splintering society. His view surprised me, and I think it's gonna surprise you too. I could have talked with him all day. We didn't cover nearly all the things I wanted to, so he'll be back. But in the meantime, I'm Kathy Brooks. And this is Talk Unleashed. Eugene, I want to thank you for taking the time to to join me today to have this conversation. You know, I, I came across your name in an article in the New York Times from this past spring regarding the phrase cheap speech, which was a, a phrase that uh, that you had coined around this idea of 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 content, every there's no gatekeeper to the creation of content. Anybody with a keyboard can go online, and you know the the value to uh, as someone with a journalism degree and background, the value to vetting of information and gathering of information. You know that that balance of free speech and then speech that has no veracity behind it. Um, it was a really interesting article about just technology and uh, both the blessing and curse of it, and. Um, I'm very interested that the world has changed exponentially, even since 1995, um, and since probably last week it has changed. And I would love to know from your perspective, um, when you think about how technology has shifted us kind of as a population, you know, as a, as a society and, um, 
and the role that technology plays in that? Well, technology has been affecting society for a very long time. Agricultural revolution was all about technology. Uh, uh, the firearms, firearms revolution uh, was all about technology. Uh, the printing press, speaking of communications technology, radically changed, uh, changed human history, probably caused tens of millions of deaths. It's plausible that it helped bring about the Reformation, which led to the wars of religion in, uh, in Europe. On balance, I think it's a good idea, but, uh, but technologies, uh, they're, they're tools and they can be used for good or ill and they have good effects and bad effects. So certainly technology has a huge effect in many ways in society. Uh, and uh, communications technology in particular, uh, radio and television back in the day are thought to help promote uh, promote kind of mass movements, including bad ones. I'm told that, for example, the rise of Hitler had something something to do with, with radio, at least some people say. Um, so uh, so it seems to me that this is uh, uh, this is something that's a perennial issue. Mm. So. I want to kind of take a little detour before we dig in more deeply. I kind of dove right into the deep end of the <laughs> into the deep end of the pool. And one place where I actually start with my guests here um, on the show, um, you know, with the the subject of being unleashed. You know, my background as a, a canine behaviorist, first as a communications professional, journalist, communications professional, turned dog behaviorist. Now, kind of bringing it all back around. One of the things that I've been finding interesting is the role that that pets and animals have played in so many people's lives in terms of the way they view things. So I guess the question for you, first of all, is um, in your in your childhood, is there a memory or a, a story of, a, of an animal or a pet interaction in your life? Could be current, could be past history that is uh, impactful for you? No, not really. Um, uh, I, my, my mother was, uh, liked uh, dogs very much. Uh, uh, and I think I had a cat when I was very small, but during my formative years, there really was no animal around. And when mm. uh, a little later in my childhood, when my mother got a, another dog, it was clearly her dog. Now I'm married and, you know, love the woman, love her dogs. So we've had a succession of dogs and my boys are very much into dogs. So I'm fond enough of dogs, but I don't have any internet dogs. And I'm not sure that... Uh, that uh, this is one area where where uh, uh, pets uh, make that much of a difference. Though who knows? Maybe one day. Maybe one day we'll have virtual pets. Uh, probably already. Some it, people probably already do. Somewhere, somewhere. Well, it's interesting. You know, the um, one of the things that I have found very interesting in my in my work in working with dogs has actually been bringing me back to my communication with humans, which is the the good behavior of the dogs is directly corollary. There's a direct corollary to how I engage with them. And then how I found that how I engage with them um, actually has changed the way I engage with people. One of the things that came up for me in the research I've been doing is this idea of curiosity being the secret sauce of domestication. So like the thing that brought dogs and humans together all those millennia ago was the that the, the wolves being inherently curious about these creatures who had now had fire and projectile weapons and leftovers of carcasses of things that were outside. And so it was that curiosity that led to their connection. But when you think about the silos of information that we've been shoved into, courtesy of technology, and I click on this, ergo, 
I now must be interested in that. And here's an article that I'll be interested in because I'm connected to this. So now I'm in this silo of data. It's actually almost removing that inherent curiosity. That idea that I go to a newspaper and I page through the newspaper and it's been curated by people and I'll read content that I otherwise wouldn't have seen. But if I'm going to my curated feed online, it's going to be pretty much all the stuff that I'm interested in. What are your your thoughts? It's hard to tell for sure because different people have different online experiences based in large part on what they choose. Um, so I suppose somebody could, if they wanted to, make sure that that all they see are things about dogs. Maybe that, maybe that's it. Or just the classic example is cat videos. You could just have cat videos morning, noon, and night. You could. Uh, it's just so easy. It just takes one click to switch to something else. And I know my experience, you know, I... I uh, look at one particular blog that basically aggregates things for me. It's written by a law professor whose editorial judgment I like, uh, Glenn Reynolds. The blog is called Instapundit. So I go there, I see some things, and I realize they're actually on a bunch of different topics. One thing that I like about him is he's interested in a lot of different things, but they mostly come from the same kind of ideology. Well, periodically, I jump over to How Appealing, which is a blog about legal developments. That's all about law, so that's its own little silo, but it's a lot of different perspectives on that, and uh, and I deliberately mix them, right? It's easier than ever before. You think of a silo, it's like a physical object, right? If I walk over to this grain silo, then it would take a lot of work for me to go over to some other silo, which might, to work with the metaphor, have storage for something else. But these days, it's not much work at all. And then I go to Google News periodically. And, you know, I'm sure it uh, gives me things based in part on what it thinks I like. For example, tends to give me American news. Although, oddly enough, on my phone, somehow it's figured out that I'm a Russian speaker based on things that I must have looked at. And now it gives me half Russian uh, news. So, so it's a little bit, uh, it's a little bit uh, 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 crafted uh, uh, towards what I'm interested in, uh, but it's 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 not really just all one thing. And if it were all one thing, it would be very easy for me to go and find something else. Now, maybe there are other people who, either by choice or by default, end up being much more focused on particular things. But it's easier than ever before to to be as broad ranging in your tastes as you could possibly want. So, you know, Eugene, I think you and I are, um, you know, certainly in your realm as a professor of law, someone in academia, the um, intellectual curiosity and and interest in that. Uh, I am, though though neither professor no, nor expert of law, uh, intellectually curious. You know, this idea of consuming data from lots of different places has always been, has always been my interest. Um, when I think about the experience of people who, for example, maybe are watching, and again, so I'm not going to make this a political conversation because it's it's really, it's irrespective of where someone's views are, that whether it's left side, air quotation marks, or right side, or sideways side, that so it seems that we might live in a world today that though it is easier than ever, to your point, to get access to that, that that there seems to be this tendency in many kind of mass circles of either 
either disinterest or maybe even fear of those things that are different. I don't know if that's an experience that you're having. So I'm sure that's true, although the interesting question is how much more true it is now than before, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that that uh, uh, even when you had a newspaper that uh, that tried to be relatively open-minded in its topics, and I'm not sure how many newspapers certainly today would be that. They, they all have their own ideological slants being run by humans. Uh, but even even if you did have a newspaper that tried to really cover things pretty well, like it had op-ed columnists from the left and the right, my guess is a lot of people said, I'm going to read this person because I trust him. Well, so happens I trust him in part because he's on my side of the aisle. And this other person, you know, the, the op-ed is right there. I could be reading it, but why should I put in the time when I think this, per this person is a fool? And how do I know he's a fool? But he, he uh, endorses this ideology that I think of as foolish. Uh, so if anything, today it's easier if you wanted to to get more because you could go from one newspaper to another without any real expense. Uh, um, so uh, so I'm not sure that we are really dealing with something really radically new now. And certainly there have historically been uh, times when newspapers were extremely ideological around the timing of the framing of the Constitution and on to the 1800s. You usually had a uh, newspapers that were affiliated with one party or not. So f this idea of cheap speech, I would love for you, uh, for the folks who are listening, who are just being introduced to you for the first time, um, what you meant at the time when you when you sure. described that phrase and, and how you have seen that e evolve or not. Sure. I think you've touched on some of those points, obviously, so far. Sure. So there's a famous line from A.J. Liebling, who was a journalist and a media critic, uh, uh, writing in the 1960s, and he, he said, the freedom of the press belongs to him who owns one. And this was a particularly good way of articulating a common critique of free speech and free press, that yeah, it's free in the sense of the government won't stop you, but it's not free in the sense of costing no money, really, to speak effectively to the public uh, costs a lot of money. So the result is, it, is that mass public speech was only available to people either who are rich or who have the ear of the rich, which is to say they are known to newspaper publishers who are willing to publish their op-eds or something along those lines, or they are involved in relatively rich movements where a bunch of people pool their resources in order to buy ad space or publish a magazine or something along those lines. So one of the things that I was predicting in 1995, and it was pretty clear that this was going to happen, I don't want to claim some, some, some really effective crystal ball here, it's just pretty obvious that this is what the internet would do, is it would make speech a lot cheaper. Uh, and as a result, people would be able to speak out where before they couldn't. And from the listener's perspective, what you'd have is you'd have greater convenience, easier than ever before to find information, much lower cost, cheaper than ever before to find information, and much more choice, much more information available to you, both because of convenience, you don't have to trek down to the library, but because people will be creating more and more information. Like I didn't predict Wikipedia, but you know that's a kind of thing that before could not have been effectively created. There are all of these blogs. So I run a law professor blog called The Volat Conspiracy. Um, and it's a little joke, like, we are a conspiracy, but we, we call ourselves that and we're on the internet. Uh, and uh, there are I, I, ca I caught that, by the way. I caught that, by the way. I thought it was funny. Right. So there are a bunch of uh, law professors uh, 
we all know certain things about certain areas of the law, and we like to think we we can really contribute to the discussion by saying, look, you know, people are talking about this question about libel law in the wake of the uh, uh, Johnny Depp versus Amber Heard uh, um, uh, a lawsuit. Well, I happen to know something about libel law because I've been studying it for a long time, and let me tell you how these principles apply here. That's kind of information that before would not have been easily available. You would have been able to read about the verdict in a newspaper, uh, but often it would be written by a generalist reporter who maybe talked to some expert, but only quotes a sentence or two. So there's more choice available. There are a lot of things you, you could you could figure out. And really, in any topic, I am sure you have found this with regard to, to, to dogs, right? There's probably much more about dogs, either from dog lovers or from dog scientists, that is to say, scientists who study dogs, not dogs who are scientists. Uh, uh, and of course, much more video. If you want to see video either of cute dog tricks or of dog behavior or whatever else, much more choice. So on balance, I think this is this is very good. Just like the printing press meant there was going to be a lot more choice in what you could read. It would be a lot more convenient because it's lower cost. Of course, there were books before the printing press. They just had to be hand copied, so they were tremendously expensive. Um, but at the same time, of course, so you can print bad things on the printing press just as easily as you can print good things. Uh, so likewise with the Internet, I think on balance, this trend towards cheap speech is, a, is good because it empowers ordinary people to speak. At the same time, some of those ordinary people and some rich people as well who use it say bad things on it. And that's that's the nature of communication. Um, and I and I know that your background prior to law, you studied computer science, so technology is not unfamiliar to you. Um, you know, I I worked in Silicon Valley. I guess we describe it as back in the day. I remember seeing Twitter come online and Facebook, and having this kind of sinking feeling in the pit of my stomach that something that clearly had such huge potential. Oh, also had the potential to be terribly dangerous, especially since it was being created by people whose, let's just say, whose social acumen wasn't necessarily very polished. You know, that when someone without real social engagement skills creates something for mass communication and social connection, um, you know, that there there could be some flaws in it. Um, you know, the found, oh, one of, yeah, the, found, of, one of the founders of Twitter, yeah, I mean, one of the founders of Twitter has even come out publicly, Ev Williams came out publicly stating, you know, kind of like we, we didn't know what hell we hath wrought. You know, we didn't, we weren't thinking that, that far down the road. So I guess I'd well, love to know. Uh, well, from, but but if, if, if I could, if I could object to, to one, one item here, um, you know, there are lots of people who are very socially gifted, who have caused tremendous damage through mass communications. You could, Hitler was very bad in very many ways, but he was good at communication and he obviously had the gift for communicating effectively to the public. <laughs> that, that, that was part of the problem. Uh, so, so to the extent the internet facilitates communication by people who otherwise might come across as uncharismatic or, uh, or uh, uh, they may speak in, they, they may not fully understand humans uh, in communication, but they are surely very knowledgeable about a particular subject and can put up some Wikipedia pages or other pages that, uh, um, that explain things well. That, that's a plus. We don't want, uh, to the extent that the existing um, uh, uh, media marketplace was uh, skewed towards people who are really kind of socially gifted, 
that's an, that 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 wasn't a, a valuable feature. I think of that. That was that was a part of the problem. That was part of the exclusionary nature of the old media marketplace. An excellent point. So I guess I would I would then ask. So how how do you see it evolving from here? You know, we talk about Web three, where there's more individual ownership. You know, that it's kind of even moving more powerfully toward individual agency um, monetization. Um, where do you see the, or, or I, I love the expression. So, so um, uh, where do you see that as a positive or a negative and where do you see that going? You know, it's hard for me to answer this in, in the abstract and in general. Uh, I think a lot of, a lot of technologies, a lot of both financial technologies and communications technologies have complicated effects and you need to know a little bit more about the details. With the internet, actually, in 1995, I was willing to talk generally because it seemed quite clear to me the direction was headed, and it did. There were pluses and minuses to it, but it did, did head this way. Likewise, I think it's pretty clear to me that uh, uh, virtual reality technology is going to be a very big thing going forward, uh, that uh, basically we've already seen, just because we've been forced into it during the pandemic, that video communication, uh, even, even with the relatively low quality that we see today, uh, is very effective for a lot of things. There are a lot of meetings that are that uh, are much more efficiently held online than they would be if you had, everybody had to drive to a particular place. In my field, law, there are oral arguments in court where you know I, I'll probably be arguing in a couple of weeks in federal district court in New Hampshire. Thankfully, I won't have to fly there uh, from Los Angeles. But I think once we get to VR, and I'm not talking about the current version of VR, but where we see it evolving, where you put on a headset, or better yet, you put on contact lenses, and it's as if you're in the room with a person. So I have an 18-year-old son and a 17-year-old son, and one's going off to college this year, another next year. I would want to have dinner with them, even when they're all the way across the country. And if I can feel like I'm having dinner, except for the part about sharing the food, if I can feel like I'm having dinner by putting on a VR headset, or again, something even more convenient, and I don't just see stick figure avatars. There are limitations for existing technology. I see them as if they were sitting at the table with me. You know, maybe that's not quite as good as actually being in the same place as them, but it's actually something that we can do uh, a couple of times a month, I would hope, rather than just once or twice for the holidays. Uh, likewise, I think VR is going to change education. It's going to change work. It's going to change social life. It may not change pet life or life with pets. Uh, but it'll change a lot. I think it'll change sex. Uh, but In what um, way? well, uh, so for um, so uh, I'm, at some point uh, they're going to develop what, or they're already working. I'd say they sound strange. At some point, VR companies are going to develop effective what is called haptic technology. They're already working on that with gloves, for example, uh, where. Uh, 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 where, uh, in theory, let's say I'm playing some video game and I'm swinging a sword, I'd like to feel it as if there's a, the sword is in my hand. And when I hit somebody else's sword, I want to feel like there's this, this resistance there, right? So they're working on, on that. It's a lot harder uh, than video or audio. It's an interesting feature of human sense and the physical world that audio is actually pretty easy to capture. People figure that, I mean, not easy, but easier. People figure that out 200 years ago. Well, not 200, let's say 150 years ago, video 
They also figured out, actually around the 1840s or so for photography and then the early 1900s for, for uh, motion video, uh, but uh, touch is actually harder to record and reproduce, but it should be doable. In any event, imagine uh, this haptic technology developed for, uh, for basically uh, sexual zones. Imagine a smart condom or imagine the, the technical term apparently for this is teledildonics. Which is, which is, it, it, it doesn't sound scientific enough, but it's very self-descriptive <laughs> if you think about it. Uh, but, but setting aside... That's going, I'm going to have to use that word in, in a sentence. I'm going right. to have to figure it's, out how to tell adultonics. That's right. amazing. Setting aside the normal titters people have when talking about that, the fact is sex is a tremendously important part of people's lives. It's already in one way or another uh, a, a, a mass, certainly a massive commitment of people's time, massive industry in various ways, some... Some bad, some not bad. Um, so so uh, certainly people are working on that. And what I think will happen between video, and we know from the appeal of pornography to many, that, that even video experiences feel like sexual experiences. But a combination of haptics and video mean that the people's sexual experiences will often be computer-mediated. Some of them may be in the context of relationships, of just traditional relationships. You can imagine Imagine two spouses. They happen to be separated because one of them is on is posted in the military to half a world away, but they want to have a sexual relationship. And they could have it mediated through this VR technology. Few people, I think, would object to that. But of course, this VR technology would equally be usable for just purely casual sex. And on balance, I think there's little reason to object to that either. You, you don't have to Especially worry about getting human viruses. You might get yeah. computer viruses, but those are easier to cure. <laughs> Nobody ever got pregnant through cyber sex. Um, yeah. So in any event, so I, what I think will happen is over time, people will find that much of, just like people find much of their entertainment experience is now electronic, they can go to the theater to be sure, but that's a very small portion of one's video experience. Much of the sexual life is going to be electronically mediated and some of it was going to be just solo, but with uh, with essentially a, a computer-generated part. You know, I go back and forth on this. I, am, I mean, I'm a fan of technology. Thanks to technology, we're able to have this conversation. You know, in back in the day, if you were doing a radio show pre-podcast, there'd be a studio that one would have to go to with, you know, formal technology that costs hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars. And now, through the simple use of the internet, we are connected in broadcast quality and, and all of that. So I'm a big, big fan. Um, I also am someone who doesn't believe that you can throw a blockade in the front of technology. It's also, it's just a, a naive thought to say you can stop it. I am a responsible, I guess I, I come to it from the perspective of how do we use it? How do we use it responsible, responsibly? Um, and and where does education fall into the mix I mean, I think about it like firearms, for example. I'm not anti-gun, but I do believe that maybe there are some kinds of firearms that don't belong in the hands of civilians for civilian purposes and that there should be background checks and there should be, you know, all sorts of things around it to protect. And we can just look at what's been happening in the last weeks alone, um, you know, to see what happens when unfettered access can happen. And at the same time, you know, humans will be human. So I guess, Eugene, where I'm, I'm going with the question, there, there is a question in here <laughs> for you, which is when you, when you think about 
what can we do as responsible users of technology or to those who would be making it who might be doing so in a responsible fashion? You know, if you could wave a magic wand so that it were done in a responsible way, so that it could be used for good. But I do believe it can be mitigated given the right education. We've seen that with seatbelts in cars, for example. Don't wear a seatbelt in a car. Car crashes. We know what can happen. Don't get behind the wheel of a car drunk. Bad things. Like So there are educational programs that have helped people understand. So if you could speak directly to the people creating these technologies to say, okay, look, we can end run some real problems here. What kinds of things would you say to them? You know, I, I don't have much of by way of a good answer. Uh, I think there are two questions that, that, that are here. One is what technological features can we add to the technologies that will diminish some of the risks? I, I don't know. I don't, uh, another question that you're saying is what about education? To what extent can you educate people to, to avoid some of these problems? And it's different because it may not be a matter of technological features, may not be education provided by the technology company. So I do think it would be a lot better if humans were harder to fool, if humans had a more skeptical mindset, if humans, rather than hearing something, say, oh, uh, uh, I can't believe he did that, would say, well, should I believe he did that? Maybe he didn't do it, right? Um, and uh, I think that would be great. Uh, the difficulty, and, and it may be, in fact, we're not teaching that enough. It may be that in school, despite occasional talk of media literacy and such, in part because school is in large measure, rightly or wrongly, the conveyance of a particular set of facts that people are expected to learn and particular ideology that changes from decade to get decade that people are expected to adhere to. Uh, schools aren't very good at leading students to really think, you know, how do I know this? Like people say this, but maybe they're not telling the truth. How can I tell who's credible and who's not? So I think it would be great if we could if, if people were taught this more, maybe that we're not using opportunities to teach it more. Maybe if school curricula were, were improved, uh, to, to people talk about critical thinking, uh, it's a buzzword that doesn't have much meaning, but at least, let's say, to skeptical thinking, to always asking about anything you're told, like, what's my basis for believing this? Should I believe this? Uh, that might be good, uh, and it may solve at least some of the problems. The difficulty is, you know, we expect our schools to do a lot already. And some of the most basic things, they don't do well at all, right? They don't teach kids to write well. Many kids, they don't teach to read well. They don't teach kids to do math very well. Now, lots of people have ideas as to how to improve that. And I think, I, I don't think this is an insolvable, uh, unsolvable problem. But at the same time, given all the problems with our educational system, I very much doubt that just adding one extra thing, oh, let's also have media literacy classes, is going to, to, to do a lot. So I, I don't really know what the answer is. Well, and I mean, an, another one of the challenges, often the children in the classroom are more literate on a particular platform or use of a technology long before some of the educators at the front of the room are anyway, well, in, terms of in terms of utilization of the technology itself. Right. It may be true about just the mechanics of doing that, but it shouldn't be hard if this is part of the, of the class to teach the teachers. Well, how do you how do I post a TikTok? I have no idea. I've heard there's such a thing as TikTok. I've never posted it. I'm not a video guy. Um, uh, but it should be very easy to learn that. The tough part is to figure out, well, somebody has a video 
how do I know that it's a real video and not something that's been mocked up, that's been faked in various ways? Or somebody tweets something out saying, oh, yeah, you know, the, uh, this is what happened in this kind of, this particular, particular case. How do I know whether this person is trustworthy? And not only how do I know this, but how do I reliably keep remembering it? You know, there are lots of things we learn in school that we learn, we study. Let's say we study in school and probably we learn enough to do it, to take the exam, but we don't really retain uh, in, into, our, into our adult lives. So the question isn't just to teach the, the techniques of media literacy, as it were, uh, which is just by media literacy, simply I mean here figuring out what's reliable, what's not, but to teach the habits of constantly applying those techniques. And uh, I, I don't know how easy that would be. I'm curious your thoughts. So you, you referenced the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial. I kind of stayed blissfully ignorant of some of the things, kind of snacked on some of the information. To your point, some friends who I, I trust as resources of information, um, I read their stuff and kind of what they were opining on, on it. Um, but I would love your thoughts. You know, here is you know, essentially a domestic dispute between two individuals now splayed across a public sphere. This is not new, obviously, in the last mm -hmm. decades. People's personal lives have been splattered across um, the public view. Um, where does this fall on the realm of whether this is good free speech, bad free speech, cheap speech, or damaging to society? Where does this fall? And, and what do you find most curious about it? Well, this particular incident is not a cheap speech phenomenon because it involves people, it involves very wealthy person, Amber Heard, teamed up with another wealthy institution, ACLU, to put out an op-ed in another wealthy institution, Washington Post. And by the way, I think ACLU probably would say, well, wait a minute, we're not rolling in the money. We've got a lot of expenses. They do, they do, but they have enough wealth and enough contacts to, to get op-eds placed in, say, some place like Washington Post. Even if it's not a matter of wealth, it's a matter of connections. And to, among other things, to, to, to implicitly accuse someone who is also a very wealthy person, right? This is something that could have happened 100 years ago, maybe for various reasons having to do with attitudes towards domestic violence and the like, and wouldn't have, but not because of lack of the internet. So this is a very traditional question, and this is one that's been traditionally understood as the province of, of libel law, or um, what happens when somebody accuses someone else of serious misconduct, criminal misconduct. And the answer that the law has long given in America, but my guess is it's true in probably all Western democracies, is that the accused should have some recourse to go to court and say, this is false. I'm not, I'm not uh, a wife beater. And it's very damaged in my reputation to say I am. And I'm going to prove it's false. And in America, in this kind of situation where you're talking about a statement about a public figure, you have to prove it's a lie. Not just an honest mistake, the way it's a newspaper might report on something and they're mistaken. But that it's a lie. Like this person says I beat her up. But that's not true. And it couldn't be an honest mistake because she's claiming to be to have been right there as a witness, a percipient witness who would know exactly what's going on. So the legal system has long authorized that in some measure 
the courts have cut back on it, starting with cases like New York Times v. Sullivan, but they've never, despite some calls to eliminate libel altogether, they've never uh, um, reached that point because they realize that people's reputations are tremendously important to them and that false and especially knowingly false accusations uh, uh, can devastate people's, people's reputations, can ruin them professionally and socially and such, and that there ought to be a recourse for that, just like if there ought to be a recourse for damaging people's property. Obviously, reputation is not the same as property, among other things that lives in other people's heads, but the analogy is, is one that I think that the law has taken seriously. Now, one problem is libel law always has what, what uh, judges call the chilling effect. And the chilling effect in the, in the narrowest and I think most precise sense, it's the tendency of a law to deter not just the speech or the activity it's supposed to deter, but also deter other things because of the risk of error. So to the extent libel law deters lies about people, that's, as we say in the computer business, that's not a bug, it's a feature. It's our goal to have a chilling effect on lies that damage people's reputations. But the problem is libel law doesn't just chill lies about people. It also chills true statements about people because somebody might say, wait a minute, you know, I know this is true, but what happens if I get sued? And what happens if the jury doesn't believe me? Certainly possible. Uh, as a result, the person might say, you know, I'd rather just shut up to be on the safe side. Uh, so that, that, that's a very serious risk. But the only way of avoiding that risk is by completely eliminating libel law and then and then, indeed, people's reputations could be could be deliberately destroyed by others without any uh, risk of, uh, of legal repercussions. And again, our legal system hasn't been willing to go that far. And by the way, Amber Heard, in turn, of course, countersued uh, Depp for lying about her by saying, oh, I'm sorry, I'm being imprecise here, countersued Depp because his lawyer, acting as his agent, lied about uh, about her by saying she was a liar, because that's bad for your reputation uh, to, to be accused of being a liar about important things like that. But the jury decided against her as to the lawyer's accusation that she was a liar because they thought she was a liar as to uh, as to the underlying uh, uh, domestic violence charges. But they decided in her favor with regard to another very particular allegation the lawyer made, which is that they that she and her friends just sort of faked some supposed domestic abuse scene and kind of deliberately in an organized way tried to uh, try to uh, lie about that. So the jury actually awarded her $2 million for that damaged reputation, even though they awarded Johnny Depp $10 million in compensatory damages for the charges against him. So, so this is the way our libel law system works. At least it works for people who have the money to sue and people, people who are suing those who have the money to pay. Maybe it doesn't work very well for ordinary people who, who can't afford to sue, uh, but that is indeed how it works uh, uh, for people who, who can engage in expensive speech and yeah. expensive lawyering. Well, and um, it's also, it, 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 when I was in journalism school, you know, one of the things that was kind of hammered into us, very kind of old school um, at the Medill School at Northwestern was, um, you know, first of all, have three corroborating independent sources for something before you call it a fact make sure that you've actually verified that some information is, you know, true to the, to the best of your ability and that, um, corrections, nobody reads them. So right. if you have, if you have damaged somebody, 
you may print a retraction or even print another article, you know, so the, the damage is on the front page of the paper that someone embezzled or someone did something awful with children or whatever the case may be. And then it's found out to not be true. And so you write an article to counter that, but that's going to be buried on page five in the lower corner where nobody's actually even going to see it. Right. Well, so no, this is, by the way, uh, one feature, one way in which cheap speech has affected things. So let's look at what loosely called the Me Too movement, which has, which basically involves people, usually women, let's say women and men, although in principle it could be be, uh, uh, any such combination. Uh, Women essentially publicly saying, I was raped, I was sexually harassed, something else, or I was the subject of non-sexual but physical domestic violence. Uh, And so they accuse someone. They accuse someone publicly of that. Historically, for most such accusers, again, maybe not the Amber Heards who have lots of money, but for most such accusers, in order to effectively do that, they had to do one of two things. Either they could actually write letters. Libel law has long applied to just ordinary kind of private communications. And sometimes you can write a letter to somebody's business partner or social associates or such. So they could have communicated. But if they want to communicate to the world at large, then in that case, uh, they they had to get a newspaper to print it. And the newspaper might say either, sometimes for bad reason, may say, we don't care about women being abused or all these women are liars in any of it. Some might have said that, but some might have said, look, Where's your corroboration? Well, nobody else was there. Well, look, I appreciate that. Maybe you're telling the truth. Certainly understand that, but I can't run this in my newspaper, both because of libel law and because of my professional responsibilities uh, to my readers and to, to, to kind of to, to, um, just professional ethics. I can't run this just based on your own say-so. I need corroboration. And I realize maybe there is no opportunity for that, but uh, uh, given, given that there's nobody else present, but I can't run this. And now with the internet, people can say, okay, I'm just going to tweet this out. And because under federal law, Twitter and Facebook and such are immune from liability, kind of like a phone company is immune from liability on what, let's say, you say on the phone lines or what you say on a voicemail message or an outgoing voicemail message, likewise, Twitter and Facebook are immune. So as a result, ordinary people can, can say this without the need for outsiders to corroborate this. Of course, they would say, look, I, I, I don't need corroboration. I was there. I know what happened. It's true. But but maybe they're telling the truth. Maybe they're not. Uh, and now that information can be out there. So one consequence of cheap speech is indeed that there are a lot more uncorroborated, possibly perfectly accurate, by the way, but still not corroborated by other sources, accusations out there that could very seriously damage people's reputation. That's the reality. And that has both a plus, a lot of those things are true. And now for the first time, we're getting to see them because you don't have timid newspapers acting as gatekeepers or timid or or responsible newspapers acting as gatekeepers, if you want to view that as a form of responsibility. But the downside also is that some of those accusations are false and people are having their reputations damaged unjustly. That's a huge problem. Both, uh, uh, but it's also was also a huge problem before when such accusations couldn't be made and true ones were therefore suppressed. I think it's just, I mean, look to your point. These are not new problems in society. You know, think of the Scarlet Letter. Think of the experience in, you know, early, you know, early civilization when 
maybe there wasn't even a printing press yet, or maybe there was a press, but it was, you know, people putting flyers up on, on walls that so-and-so had done such and such. Um, and then having to clean that up, that it's just on a, on a wider scale and can literally at the, at, at, at the click of a button commuting to, to tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people. Right. And, um, and the recourse for it, you know, I just, I come back to personal right. responsibility, you know, um, coming back to that grounding of before I say something, you know, the old adage, how would you feel if this were on the front page of the New York Times? You know, would you feel okay about it if you're doing something or saying something? Um, and that sense of personal responsibility, which, and again, I don't mean to sound like the like, hey, kids, get off my lawn, lady, because I'm, I'm not. But that idea of somewhere along the line, this idea of personal responsibility that people just send They'll, it's so easy to be a keyboard warrior and to send that tweet or to put that post on Facebook and turn off your computer and walk away and not really think about the consequence. And it would be something that you would never in a million years say to someone, were you in the room with them? You know, right. and yeah. And so. Yeah. Uh, but just, just to be clear, what you're talking about is not just things that are outright libel, uh, but just like personal cruelties. Uh, just, just insults, uh, things that that can really poison conversations and social relationships in many ways. That indeed, in person, we'd be hesitant to say to someone because we've kind of evolved to say, you know, can I really say it to his face? Plus, also in person, we so we've evolved to be worried that if we say it to this person's face, we'll get punched or worse. Uh, but with the internet, it's all more distant, and as a result, I think there's a lot more trash talking in many ways uh, online. Forget libel, which at least is subject to legal liability. Trash talking, which is not subject to legal liability. It's, and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, maybe in fact, I when I was when I was a kid, maybe I just traveled in genteel circles. Maybe there was always lots of trash talking. It just, they, didn't, uh, they didn't let me into their, play their little reindeer games. Yeah, um, I mean, I think uh, about but, that. Uh, but I do, think, I do think that the internet makes it easier for people to just be mean to each other. Yeah, I think about that um, whenever, if I'm in a debate, I just don't even engage in these sorts of things really on social media anymore because why bother? It's never going to, it doesn't accomplish anything. I do get into uh, very rich conversations with people whose opinions are different than mine. I enjoy that. I love using those platforms for discourse and engagement and and learning new things. And and I never mm-hmm. you know, fail to learn something new. And I always love that moment where the, if there is a person and they devolve immediately into making it a personal attack, my response is usually, okay, so you just made it personal. So either you don't have a point to make, or I just won (laughs) because you've, you've just taken it from the point of discussion and tried to hurt my feelings. And this isn't a personal conversation, so I don't know where that's going. And it goes just, again, it goes back to, I guess, having a slightly thicker skin and, um, you know, not taking it so darn seriously sometimes. I mean, it's um, it becomes dangerous, though. You think about the things that get said and the, um, I mean, we know we can't scream fire in a crowded movie theater. We know that that's, you know, I can't incite people. Well, let, me be, let me be a little bit more precise about that. The line is you can't falsely scream fire in a crowded movie. Uh, correct. I guess I if there were a fire well, and so you yeah, were to scream so fire. It's you... not people deploy that often as just a means of saying, well, that just means we can restrict the speech because we think it's like screaming fire. Well, you know, falsely shouting fire in a crowded theater not only is dangerous, 
but it also pretty clearly has no value, no constitutional value, because it's, it's falsehood and usually deliberate. By the way, if you if you just if you think there's a fire and you scream fire, you may probably wouldn't be punishable because you know it was an honest mistake, and it's probably better on balance if people overshout than undershout in that respect. But if you're deliberately lying about it, there's no value to it, which is why it's so easy to say that it's not uh, uh, not protected. A lot of things that people talk about with regard to shouting fire in a crowded theater, uh, when they use that as an analogy, are things that are expressions of opinion uh, that are that are constitutionally valuable, even though they are dangerous. The First Amendment protects a lot of dangerous speech, very dangerous speech. It just it doesn't protect all knowing false speech. This is Talk Unleashed. Sit tight. We'll be back right after this. As fascinated as I am by the professor's view, I gotta say, this whole idea of virtualizing everything, even sex, I mean, I feel like it's at the start of one of those sci-fi movies where, I mean, look, let's face it, nothing ever goes well in those movies, right? If there's anything that the pandemic taught me, it's that human contact is critical. Sure, technology is nice as a stopgap for when it's just not possible, like the scenario in today's episode about family that's far away, but like everything else, we can't forget how the best intentions for technology always seem to go south. Don't get me wrong, I'm a big fan of tech as much as the next person. If not for technology, I'd not be talking to you guys right now. It's democratized so many things, and that's a good thing. And the sword cuts both ways. If we allow that technology to infiltrate everything, the risk we run, we're seeing it every day. A society that is so deeply detached despite this extreme connectivity. Detached, dissociated. About halfway through the first year of the pandemic, probably August or so timeframe, I had established a pod with some friends. They were being super careful, as was I, and we were spending time outside doing outside things. I dropped something off at her house, and she went to give me a hug to thank me, and I hadn't had a hug in like five months. I paused, and then I leaned in. It's one of the best hugs I've ever had in my life. It lasted for several minutes, and the energy was palpable. It wasn't about the physical sensation alone. It was the energy, the connection with another human. Yes, technology, it's great, it's useful. But the very idea of it replacing the thing that makes us human, it should chill you to the bones. It sure does for me. Hey there, thanks for stopping by. If it's your first time, I'm glad you joined us. And if you've been here before and you're back for more, splendid. Good to have you. Either way, make sure you don't miss out on any of the great conversations we have coming up on Talk Unleashed, or the great ones we've had already for that matter. Hit up your favorite podcast player and subscribe. While you're at it, do me a favor, leave a review. Okay, it's nice to hear nice things, but it also helps other people find the show. And remember, sharing is caring. And this show, I don't do it on my own. 
It Takes a Village. And Talk Unleashed wouldn't be possible without John McClane and the amazing team at Monster Sound and Picture. Thanks, John. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. I look forward to having you back next week for another episode of Talk Unleashed. Unleashed.